0: My name's Duncan Laney and um, I'm a professional pilot, I've been um, a pilot for about 25 years and um, part-time I do some instructing and examining at the Jersey Aero Club, um, which is how I'd met Paul and it's how we ended up um, flying together on that day. We were flying um, from Jersey on a local training flight to uh, land back at Jersey and we were planning to be in the air for about an hour and we were just doing some instrument flying training um, which was the stage that um, Paul is kind of at in his um, private pilot's licence career and we were to the southeast of Jersey about 10 miles off the coastline in a sort of northerly direction, pointing in a northerly direction. Um, and it was quite a nice afternoon. It was sunny, there were some showers around, uh, but it was quite breezy. It was probably about 25 to 30 miles an hour from the west on the surface. As we were sort of setting the aircraft up to fly an approach, a training instrument approach to Jersey airport, um, we had the first indications that we had uh, some form of engine problem, which manifested itself in a loss of power to us. So I'd never actually specifically trained to ditch an aeroplane but I had thought about it and I knew what was involved to do it but what we do train for quite a lot is um, if you have an engine failure the immediate actions of uh, what to do um, so uh, how to fly the aeroplane uh, where to sort of think about pointing it and most of the time you practice flying an approach down to about 500 feet um, into a field so you'll pick a field or an open area and you'll fly a set pattern to try and um, position the aircraft to get a successful landing and when you get down to about 500 feet the majority of the training is uh, complete and then you will put your power on and climb away again so uh, I was well familiar with how to do that into a field um, and it's the same kind of principles um, when you're obviously the, uh, the field has just been replaced by the water So I knew how to initially handle the aircraft, and the actual feeling that you get when something goes wrong is um, I describe it best by someone is standing on your stomach. If you're lying down, you can feel a real tightening inside yourself, a kind of disbelief and pain, which lasts for about 10 or 15 seconds. And and I felt that a few times in my life, not, not just when I've been flying, but when i've been involved in you know riding my bike and i can see an accident happening or um i've been in a car accident you know you can see something happening and you feel it that tension inside um and when you're flying my my training in the past uh, i knew that that would happen it it you need to try and overcome it so you just need to focus on flying the aeroplane not really doing too much other than flying the airplane until that subsides, that initial horrible feeling and then you can be a little bit more analytical in your approach. When it sort of became apparent that we were in real trouble and we were probably going to end up uh, ditching the aircraft, um, then we declared an emergency to air traffic control and of course um, in doing so that enables them to um, carry out their own independent procedures um, which I've been told afterwards was to fix our position. Uh, They could start um, putting the emergency services on alert um, and they could start um, doing things that they need to do to try and um, you know get us rescued when the inevitable was going to happen. The whole descent until we ended up in the water was only about two to two and a half minutes so the whole thing happened incredibly quickly. but it was nice to have that external agency um, with us knowing that when we did end up in the water they knew you know, our pretty approximate position um, and they also told us the help was going to be on its way. So that was a nice feeling. The, the actual uh, touchdown of the aircraft onto the water was just like touching down onto a, onto a runway that's obviously moving around a little bit. Um, So, um, the actual manoeuvre to land on the water, I treated it just like uh, landing onto a runway. Um, But obviously there was big deceleration after we uh, touched down. And the rush of water that we experienced was a little bit like in the film, Sully, when they landed on the water. Um, the water comes straight over the top of the uh, the aircraft over the top of the canopy and you completely feel enveloped by water it's a great big surge of the sea that's coming over the top of you and I think uh, that was probably just the spray that was um, you know that that was felt by the aircraft as it touched down and yes it was being quite noisy and we'd been quite busy um, up until that point because up until We actually touched down in the water there was still a belief that we might be able to climb away if power suddenly came restored back to the aircraft Um, but then obviously once we touched down we slowed down and after that surge of water we ended up with the engine shut down just sat there in a really eerily quiet environment Um, there was no noise it was just uh, normal natural um, the noise from the sea Um, so that was kind of strange, feeling a little bit, um, you know, going from uh, a quite high intense period to actually just uh, almost sitting there. And Paul and I both looked across at each other, both asked ourselves each other if we're OK. And then we moved on to the next phase, which was to egress from the aeroplane and then to think about whether we need to get into the uh, life raft or not. I think the aircraft are designed to float for a certain while., um, but I think it just depends um, you know maybe on the actual um, materials that are used in its manufacture. Um, uh, maybe the age of the airplane has a bit of a factor in it as well, um, but also the conditions of the sea. So it was quite choppy and rough on this particular day. so um, the water, was beginning to come into the aircraft when we opened the door, um, just through, I think, the natural fact that it's not perfectly watertight. Um, So it is going to take a period of time. Um, I thought it was going to stay afloat a little bit longer than it actually did, but I think had the, um, the conditions, the sea conditions hadn't been quite so choppy, it probably would have stayed afloat a little bit longer than it did. Of course, it probably gets to a point a point of no return when there's so much water that's got on board that that then and that's when it's going to that's when it's inevitably going to sink um, when we did watch it sink it went down nose first because obviously the, the engines the most uh, heaviest part um, and it literally went um, nose first and the tail flipped up out of the water and then probably just went straight down to the seabed from there um, but I did think when we got outside the airplane that we might you know we might be able to stand on the wing of the airplane um, hopefully for the duration of the time that it would take for the and the light to come and get us um, which I thought might be, you know, um, maybe an hour, an hour and a half I, I wasn't really too sure but um, I certainly wasn't expecting the aircraft to sink or to start sinking in the time frame that it did which was only a couple of minutes The actual being in the life raft yeah, I mean, it's a small life raft um, and you're cold and um, you are... Um, Beginning to feel maybe a little bit queasy because it's going up and down a little bit, um, but the actual initial feeling is one of okay, um, is anybody coming to get us? We we you know all the training I've done in the past in life Ross, I've always known that someone's there in a safety capacity, and if I get into trouble, they're just going to come and haul me out. But you in a real life situation, you have those doubts in your mind. You don't know if someone's definitely coming to get you. And you've got to overcome that with a bit of rationality. And uh, that's what Paul and I, I think, did really well. We we reassured each other and we tried to put everything into context. You know, we said, well, air traffic control know roughly, you know, where we were. Um, so they know that, um, you know, we're in the water. I had a, um, a personal locator beacon, which I'd activated. Uh, and although I didn't know if it was definitely broadcasting, where we were, um, I you know I had a high confidence that it was going to be sending out our position, um, and so when you rationalise all of that, you, you kind of you know that someone's coming to come to come to get you. But it is very difficult to get that horrible feeling away from you that crikey we might not get rescued from here and we might end up in France. We saw a um, the French helicopter overhead. Um, and, uh, and a few other aircraft um, but then the first indication that we had that the um, RNLI were there was the uh, the RIB um, which was uh, to the south of us conducting their um, their search pattern uh, so that was the first indication that we had that they were there and then as we saw them coming towards us um, it was definitely obvious then that it wasn't uh, just another boat it was indeed the uh, the RNLI um, and then you know, the, the emotion that we experienced was um, mostly of relief, you know, relief that first off we'd been found and then um, secondly that we were going to be out of the dinghy and rescued and, and taken back. So, um, as I said before, in that dinghy you still always have that horrible feeling of doubt and, um, but then when you first see the, um, the life raft coming towards you, or the lifeboat, um, then you have that enormous overwhelming feeling of relief that you're going to be out of the situation. Subsequent to the event, we've had um, a few occasions when we've met with the crew. Um, firstly to go and thank them and we've done a few other little events with them. Um, and that's been really nice. We've uh, forged um, some friendships with them. Um, and they've been really interested to hear our views on what happened, because I think they're trying to use that in uh, their own training of uh, what they do in the future, but more from an emotional, uh, an emotional point of view. Uh, they want to know uh, how we felt, what it was like, um, because obviously it's a, it's a great outcome when people do get rescued, and obviously it's not always the case, but um, I think that's their overriding Thing that came out of it is uh, one of the that they were able to assist us on that day and we had a successful outcome with, um, nobody was injured uh, other than a little bit of uh, pride but um, you know it, it was a completely successful experience for everybody it's an organization of volunteers that people that give up their own free time for the benefit of the greater community um, without which then um, inevitably lives would be lost at sea. So I'm incredibly grateful for the people that do give up their spare time um, to volunteer for the RNLI. And um, they strike me as being an incredibly professional organisation that do a fantastic job when they're called upon in some pretty austere circumstances. Hello, this is Ruth Jones. You've been listening to the RNLI's 200 Voices Collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org slash 200voices or subscribe to RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 200 Voices is produced for the RNLI by Adventurous Audio Limited.